G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, an author, motivational speaker, record executive, a legend of both popular music and late night television, the keeper of the big beat. From the E Street to a modern day Doc Severinsen in the Max Weinberg 7, to the pure joy of playing expressed in Max Weinberg's jukebox, he is the mighty Max. He once said, if people forget their troubles for a short time while listening to my drumming, I'm healing the world. It is a mitzvah. Max Weinberg, welcome to my favorite album. Uh, it's so nice to be with you today on my favorite album. Thank you. you know, thanks for having me here in your suite in a hotel that I obviously won't name because otherwise you'll never be able to come back here again. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here. So Max, what is your favorite album? Well, it's a very, very interesting question because the album that I picked is not likely the one people would think I would pick, but it's called Persistent Percussion. released in 1960 and it was the first long playing record vinyl that I ever had I had 78s before that and a lot of 45s but it was the first big 12 song recording I ever had and I got it when I was nine years old and it was based around percussion and at the time I didn't know who the players were but they were credited on the record. And the drummer was a guy named Irv Kotler. Irv Kotler later in life became a very close dear friend of mine. And he was for probably 50 years, Frank Sinatra's main drummer, certainly on the road and on a lot of recordings, New York, New York, very busy session guy. He was the TV band drummer for the Dinah Shore show in the early 60s. In any case, there were a lot of all-stars on this persistent percussion record. And it was an album put together by a guy named Maxwell Davis, who I guess was an arranger, and it was called Maxwell Davis's All-Stars. And the names were like a who's who of L.A. session musicians at the time. Conti Gondoli, who played in the Tonight Show band, trumpet, and Bill Pittman, who was with Phil Spector's Wrecking Crew on guitar. And it was recorded over two days. And I guess the genre now would be pop exotica 
at the time, it was just what people were playing. This guy, Les Baxter, had had a hit with this sort of tropical-influenced pseudo-jazz, not really straight-ahead backbeat rock, lots of different percussion, you know, claves and bongos. And, and then Martin Denny came along. And, of course, in the 90s, there was a resurfacing of this music under the label of Pop Exotica cocktail lounge or lounge music to me though it was it was very rhythmically infectious and it swung which was different than what i had been listening to i've been listening to a lot of 45s of country and western and pop records not even having drums on them you know patty page was a big uh, singer at the time and lovely music but not where my musical interests would lead me but this thing was you could really bop your foot to it and I would say it was a big influence on me. Well, that's interesting because, like, it's not something where I was, I have to say, not aware of this record before I found out it was your pick for the show, and then I went back and listened to it. And it's not something where it's the most obvious line between, like, the kind of percussion and drumming on this record and the kind of stuff that you're best known for playing. So I'd, I'd be really interested to hear how that influence, you think, is manifested in your own work. Well, I was a very nervous kind of kid, physically nervous, you know. I would always be banging on things and couldn't sit still. And I'd probably be diagnosed today if I was a child with something. But in those days, it was just sort of hyperactive. And rhythm drew me in, whether it was a country beat or, in this case, the sort of exotic kind of Latin-esque island-esque music coming off this persistent percussion, it drew me in and it calmed me down. So my entire approach to drumming, and not only because of this record, because I started to take drum lessons from a local drum teacher in New Jersey at the time whose tutelage included being well-rounded. So I never looked at drumming per se to be, well, I'm just going to do this and this only. I learned from everything I ever listened to. And, you know, as I later found out, the musicians on this persistent percussion record were some of the most successful uh, studio musicians in Los Angeles in the 50s and the 60s, um, particularly in, in the percussion, the sort of, you know, congas, timbales, shakers, uh, a guy named Larry Bunker uh, and Gene Estes were uh, mainstays of Phil Spector's Wrecking Crew. So they had long careers. Um, Irv, of course, was a, uh, was a, Irv Kotler was a, a, a well-known jazz swing, big band drummer. And all my favorite records were, I found out later, made by big band drummers, uh, even though they were rock records. So they always had a kind of swinging thing. So while the music, uh, I ended up playing, and we got to remember, this was all pre-Beatles. Yeah. And it was kind of the time in, in pop and rock music from about 50, right after Elvis went in the army, uh, it was a bit of a wasteland. And you had some great instrumental bands, which were fun, the surf bands. Of course, they didn't call them surf bands at the time. They were just pop records that would you know, make the charts. But it was all pre-Beatles. And um, there was a, um, this kind of music was a bit of a missing link between, uh, you know, sort of s small, you know, jump blues, jazz combos, and rock and roll. Um, so for me, I, I took it all in. And it, for example, some of the stuff on this would come out when I would play uh, Rosalita. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, on the song Rosalita, when I first learned that, uh, Bruce's song in 1974, the uh, chorus didn't have uh, a cymbal uh, bell kind of Latin-esque beat. It was done on the record on the hi-hat, and it was just sort of a more of a straight beat. But my experience with listening to that kind of you know bouncy Latin rhythm, I just played it, and it worked. the way I've played it ever since. So I sort of injected that into a song that had already been recorded by Bruce and the E Street Band and that I picked up on and kind of put my own little stamp on it. So I can directly link that with persistent percussion. The other way that record influenced me was when I did get the uh, TV job in 1993. Um, my idea was to harken back to when you saw you know, great drummers and great big bands and orchestras on television, which late night TV had obviously uh, gotten away with, uh, from with my dear friend Paul Schaefer, who brought rock to late night, and we, we owe him a great debt for doing that. We had to stand out in the uh, late night music arena, so what I did was I, I basically harkened back to my roots and and played a lot of different styles of music, but everything swung. Everything technically had a bit of a uh, dotted boom, boom, ba doom, boom, ba doom, boom, ba doom kind of beat, and that was very different. Uh, it was just something I, I I latched onto as something I'd done when I was a child playing the drums, because that's how you were taught to play the drums. Everything had to swing. It wasn't until much later that. Uh, you know, rocking with a straight beat uh, came in as the predominant drumming style. But in my case, because I was of my age and I, I, I had that influence, my drumming, rock drumming style always had a bit of that swing to it. And the drummers that I admired, in, whether they were in the rock field or jazz or pop music or even classical music, had that swing where it just, uh, it felt right. You know, you were kind of providing a... a uh, an underpinning, a whirlwind underpinning uh, for the other players to play on top of. And to me, that was the swing. It's interesting in the 90s that this music, which we started playing on TV, we did a lot of uh, Martin Denny stuff. And uh, about two years into our run, there was a series of records that came out, um, I think by Rhino Records, uh, which I'm not even sure is in existence anymore, called Lounge. And it was a rediscovery of this music of the 50s with Les Baxter and Esquivel and, uh, and Martin Denny. And we were already playing it on TV. So it, and also swing dancing came back and we were playing it on TV. So I can, 
when you asked me to do your show, the first record that popped into my mind, a long playing album, was Persistent Percussion, where, you know, it, it could have been, and I can point to so many other records that are my favorites and influential, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Buddy Rich, Big Swing Face, uh, all the records I listened to, but um, that was the first, you know, 12-inch that I held in my hand that was mine. We had a lot of Broadway soundtrack, uh, well, they were cast albums, they, they were called, which was the most popular form of long-playing record in the, in the 40s, 50s, and even in the beginning of the 60s. The biggest selling 12-inch uh, format was uh, Broadway cast albums. Sound of Music, King and I, uh, The Music Man, all of those Broadway shows, which I was fortunate enough to see. Um, when rock started to become an art form, uh, you know, they supplanted uh, those pop those pop records. But as a drummer, uh, unless you, you know, are so good that you can do one thing and one thing only, um, uh, my approach was always to play everything that I'd ever heard and be able to figure out something. And uh, that's where persistent percussion comes in. Also had a fantastic cover. And of course, you know, this is something we don't really have anymore where you go to a record store and you thumb through all your, we don't have record stores. Generally, uh, you would thumb through the albums and the graphics were incredible. And the people who did the album covers were stars. This album cover was very space age and it had these these shooting kind of parallel lines, very Sputnik-y. It was 1960. Sputnik, of course, was the first satellite put into, uh, into Earth orbit by, uh, at the time, the Soviet Union. Uh, so people were very space-age oriented. And uh, the album uh, reflected that. It looked a little bit uh, like uh, uh, Blue Note Records, which was the big bebop jazz label. And some of these artists became, went on to become very, very uh, well-known graphic designers. I want to pick up on something you were referencing a few times there about this, like, kind of the all-roundedness of your approach and how, you know, somewhat inspired by this record, but just your general practice is to kind of be able to play anything. And I know that must have played in a lot when you were doing the late-night show because you were, you know, you were, even though it was based in sort of the jump blues thing, you were sometimes like backing up a bunch of different people. You know, like you played, I think, with Tony Bennett at one stage on yeah. the on the show, which must have been like a real like full circle thing because I'm sure that's like, you know, this this period when we're talking about here, you know, his records were starting to come out too, and like that's I guess something that is very different from you know what you're doing at the moment with the Max Weinberg jukebox when you're covering that whole British invasion period. And then it's also very different to the stuff you do with the E Street Band. So having those like complete spectrum of um, different styles in your bag, which you can, I guess, pull out and cross-pollinate when you need to, is probably one of the secrets to your success. The versatility was something that my drum teacher, my first drum teacher, his name was Gene Thaler, really stressed because um, drummers are craftsmen. And generally, at the time, uh, you were being hired by a saxophone, or you weren't. It wasn't a lead singer; it was a instrumental bands usually. So you you did have to be able to cover everything, and and allow your own personality to come through that. In my case, a lot of drive, 
a lot of, uh, in some cases, bombast, but also the ability to lay back. Um, rock, because of the Beatles, uh, for me and a lot of other people in my generation, became the sort of mountaintop to try to scale because of the scale of their success and the impact they had. I've often uh, mentioned, uh, when I, you mentioned that I do public speaking occasionally, I'll get the question of, well, what about the Beatles? And I'll say, well, c consider the Beatles to be the internet of the 1960s or the <laughs> iPhone. That's how impactful they were on culture and politics and the whole youth generation, which began uh, after World War II and really solidified uh, in the, you know, the, the 60s as this uh, expression of freedom um, bursting out from the uh, seeming placidity of the 50s, which was a time that uh, wasn't at all placid. It was just very, very sort of undercover. And people look at look at the 50s as this sort of bland uh, 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 time period in American history that uh, everything was calm and it wasn't that at all. It was the beginnings of the Cold War and the tension and Spy versus Spy and Mad Magazine. And uh, so the, the cultural uh, impact of all this music that we were listening to really spread far. With my jukebox, I'm basically playing these songs in the rock and roll genre that I grew up listening to that were fun to play then and are still fun for me to play. And my feeling is as long as you respect the music and the arrangements and most importantly, the tempo, because these are songs you've heard all your life uh, if you're, you know, 30 and over. And uh, so we don't, what we try to do is capture the fun and the and sort of infectionness of uh, of the period when everything was new every three months. It was being reinvented every three months. I've got a tempo question for you, and it's like off kind of off topic, but since you just mentioned tempo, which I know is like a really big part of like the core of your drumming style, when you're playing in the E Street Band, you're playing with a singer who will often count the song in does he ever count the song in in a different tempo than you would ideally want to play it in? One, two, three. Well, that's a great question because through the years, and we've been so fortunate in the East Street Band, all of us, including Bruce, to be able to grow up together. And if you listen to our re recordings from the 70s, uh, we were pretty wild. And sometimes the, uh, the tempo announcement or just the count off, one, two, three, four, didn't have anything to do with where we were playing the song. <laughs> but we've all, it's been such a wonderful experiment, the E Street Band, because we've all gotten so much better through the years, uh, the growth, um, is uh, uh, terrific because most bands don't get that opportunity to, to stay together for you know 45 years now you know in my case and uh, and learn and grow and make mistakes and uh, uh, and and dig into your instrument and keep exploring keep keep challenging so Bruce has an amazing ability to know where he wants to sing a song. Oh, 
And I've made a real study of it uh, in terms of the more technical aspects to drumming. And because um, it, it is all about supporting the singer and the song. If you're not doing that, you're not doing anything. And you have your moments to sort of step out. But if you're not an accompanist generally and have the confidence to be able to take over when need be, uh, that's the place you try to get to as a, a drummer and I would say as a musician. But uh, yeah, he, he knows where he wants to sing these songs, even the new songs. I mean, his t sense of, uh, of correctness for him is really spot on. Well, let's go back to um, someone you mentioned earlier who played drums on persistent percussion and then later became a friend of yours. Let's talk about Irv. I've got you under my skin. You mentioned some of his credits before. For me, like he played on all my favorite, a lot of my favorite Sinatra records, mm. all throughout that great Capital and all the early reprise stuff, and, and then was his live drummer for decades. But he wasn't someone, at least the impression I get from interviews, who had a lot of respect for rock music. So how did you guys intersect? Well, Irv Kotler was uh, a dear friend of mine, and we met in the late 70s in Los Angeles through sort of drum circles, and not only actually playing, but just through somebody knew him, who knew me, and, and I'd always spoken about him because I had his picture on the wall behind my little drum set when I was, I think, 11 years old. So he was a presence in my life, and even though I didn't know him. And when I finally met him, uh, you know, what was interesting about his generation was, of course, rock music and rock drumming in large uh, degree supplanted American pop music. So a lot of these guys were out of, they weren't out of work, but they were certainly out of the volume of work that they had. And there was definitely, uh, when, when, when rock started to take over, in the 60s there was a resentment because it was economic but irv as long as you played straight ahead he didn't care what you played as long as you did it the best you could and you were good at it and i found in meeting people of his generation musicians that if you knew the history and if you knew the impact that the people that came before him made which i always made it a point to know uh you know you can't uh, obviously talk, talk about an Irv Kotler without talking about a Buddy Rich or, or Gene Krupa, and you can't talk about Gene Krupa and uh, Buddy Rich without knowing about uh, uh, Chick Webb, and Chick Webb leading before Chick Webb, George Wetling, and before him, Baby Dodds and Zooty Singleton. and uh, The names get better and better at the feet yeah. back, don't they? Well, they're very, yeah, Zooty. I mean, yeah. you know, who's... Where does that come from? Well, New Orleans drummer and uh, Louis Armstrong. And uh, so these were the first what they called trap set drummers. When, the, when the, uh, the big changeover was when William F. Ludwig, what put him on the map was he created the first bass drum pedal. And he had a patent on it. And now you could, you, you, you could sit down. It was automation. You could sit down as a drummer and you didn't need one guy to play the bass drum, one guy to play the snare drum, and another guy to play the cymbals. Now one guy could do it all. He invented the bass drum and the hi-hat, the cymbals that go together. 
So that revolutionized drumming, and it led to, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, it led from basically marching bands and orchestral uh, setups to combos, where the drummer now could sit down. Uh, and the drum sets were you know, pretty wild looking, but they were uh, uh, exactly the same as we're playing now, essentially, same kind of setup. So, but Ir Irv was a great all-around drummer, of course, he wasn't a rock era drummer, and you can you can hear the difference in uh, when rock and roll started to uh, become prevalent in studio drummers playing. Essentially, uh, there were always purists who would play nothing but jazz or swing or big band or you know whatever they were playing. But you know, if you listen to the Dinah Shore show, uh, which is on you know is obviously on on uh, DVDs now, you hear swinging arrangements, and that's Irv Collar. Uh, we remained friendly, and it wasn't like we were uh, at each other all the time, but we remained friendly, and I'd see him, and he uh, graciously, and our, our schedules coincided, and he graciously invited uh, my wife and I and two of our friends to go to a amphitheater in New Jersey at the time called the Garden State Arts Center. It's still there. It's got a different name. It's got a corporate name now. And it was an interesting place because they presented all types of music from Broadway to opera to ballet. They don't do that now. It's only rock as most amphitheaters have gone to. But we had the incredible honor and pleasure of meeting Frank Sinatra that night. Start spreading the news. And it was because of Irv. And I actually have a picture of my wife and I, Mr. Sinatra, and Irv in the background who had just introduced us. And uh, it was a wonderful uh, meeting, and he was as gracious as he could be. He was just about to go on. And in fact, at one point, Irv excused himself to go play the overture. <laughs> and my wife, Becky, and I continued to talking to Frank Sinatra uh, and between Irv and Mr. Sinatra and myself, we started talking about drummers. And of course, he famously, uh, to the end of, they were dear friends to the end of Buddy's life. But when they both were in the Tommy Dorsey band, they roomed together. They were 22 years old and they, were, they fought like cats and dogs. And it forged a friendship between Buddy Rich and Frank Sinatra that lasted their entire life or buddies buddy died first and so we got on the subject of drummers and i knew all certainly the names and in many cases the drumming of some very obscure drummers that that frank sinatra knew like that because he'd sung with them johnny blowers who was about eight years old, older than him and so it all <laughs> kind of goes back to that album in 1960 persistent percussion because uh, Irv Kotler was the drummer and uh, I not in later life I didn't seek him out but we met and it was kind of you know I told him wow I've had your picture on my wall I still have that picture uh, now it's signed to me from him I, I you know you, in those days you could send away to the drum companies and get uh, an 8 by 10 glossy picture of the drummers I guess you still can and I sent away and I had that picture for for years and years, I finally got him to sign it in Atlantic City one time when uh, Sinatra was playing down there. Did Sinatra know, I mean, 
were you introduced to Sinatra as this is my friend Max Weinberg? He's a great drummer. He plays in the E Street Band. Did, did he have a context for who you were and the music that you were making? Or? Well, that's a, a, again a very uh, spot on question because uh, I can set the scene. Uh, we were a bunch of us, maybe 30 people standing on the wings of this stage. And suddenly a uh, uh, tall, elegant guy comes out and clears the area. And I had a photographer there, just in case it did happen, because you never know. Yeah. This was in 1987, my daughter was two weeks old, and we went to this concert, and he cleared the area. And I, we were standing there talking with Irv Kotler, and Irv said to what turned out, uh, the gentleman turned out to be Elliot Weissman, who was Frank Sinatra's manager at the time, uh, uh, oh, it's okay, Elliot, uh, these people are with me. So everybody else left, but we got to stay. And Elliot Weissman went over to the door, opened the door to the dressing room, which is right off the side of the stage, and out walked Frank Sinatra in a tuxedo with an orange handkerchief, uh, holding a cigarette, and you know, what looked to be a small cocktail glass of, I guess, Jack <laughs> Daniels. And Irv saw him, and we were maybe 18 feet away, something like that. And Irv said, hey, Frank, Come on over here. I want you to meet a friend of mine. So he walks over. He goes, Frank, this is Max Weinberg and his wife and their friends. And Max plays drums for Bruce Springsteen. And Sinatra looks at me and says, ah, oh, so you play drums for the boss. <laughs> and so he, he, it was very interesting. This was, like I said, in 87. So he, I guess, was 72 years old at the time. And... Um, yeah, we. Uh, I said, yes, Mr. Sinatra, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, what can I say? It's an honor to meet you. And uh, and then we started talking, and, uh, and Irv said, yeah, this kid is good, Frank. He's a good drummer. He follows the, the music. And he goes, ah, drummers, listen, without this guy, he sang of Irv Kotler, I'd be nowhere. And as you said, he, Irv Kotler was uh, Sinatra's road drummer for 50 years and played on... A, probably 60% of his studio stuff, along with Alvin Stoller. Alvin Stoller was one of the great jazz drummers, big band jazz drummers, uh, you know, all pre-bebop. So Alvin Stoller took Buddy Rich's place with, it was either Harry James or Tommy Dorsey, and, you know, he made his living as a studio musician. He, you know, one of his terrific songs is Come Fly With Me, the original. He played a lot of the Capitol stuff, uh, and uh, uh, fantastic drummer. Um but we started talking about drummers, and suddenly there was just these three guys. Jersey, you know, pretty much two guys from Jersey, me yeah. and Sinatra, talking about these older drummers who, because I knew the history, it wasn't just all, you know, in their eyes, uh, Ginger Baker and Keith Moon and Ringo Starr. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I knew the history. And I credit my drum teacher with a lot of that because he, he never made it really big, but he loved drumming and drummers. And he was a Gene Krupa contest winner. You know, they had this national contest in the 40s. And uh, the all-time greatest winner of that was Louis Belson. So they had him, you know, locally, statewide, Eastern Seaboard, Midwest, West Coast. And then one drummer would emerge as the ultimate Gene Krupa drumming champion. And uh, I think in 1946 or something, it was... Louis Belson, something like that. But Gene Thaler was a, a, a great drummer who never quite made a... He did as a drum teacher. He made a, a very good commercial success of it. 
but he loved the drums. And what he transmitted to me was the, the, the real serious rudimentals, which were important, and his love of drums, drummers, and the history. And he was like what they would call now a hep cat. He was very, he was, you know, a real hipster. But, you know, at the time I was nine, I think he was 30. So he's so he a bit older than me. He must have seemed unimaginably old to you at the time. He did, as yeah. A you know, and and he, you know, he was born in the twenties, so he came up through the whole big band era, idolizing these guys. And so when I was asked what my favorite album was, and I certainly have my favorite albums during the rock era, but the one that sort of has been this thread, the foundation of all of my drumming, because of where it led me was this persistent percussion in 1960. It was also on a very cool red vinyl label. It was originally released in mono, and I had the mono version. Then it came out in stereo. Uh, and they used to say on the back of the album cover, electronically reprocessed for stereo, which I still don't know what that means, but That's it great. sounded cool. They should just put that on all the, on, on all the stereo records. You know, like next... Um, record that you play and you just have that on the back of the record it's just like that's great that's a better thing to put on than you know well stereo when it atmos. came out was a bit of a gimmick because they'd have jet you know recorded sound effects records of jet planes going across the speakers and but that's not how your ear hears it your yeah. ear your ears typically hear in mono which is why you know everybody recorded in mono i have all my original rock records were were mono because I didn't have a stereo. Yeah. And there's that famous thing about like the Beatles would slave over the mono mixes of their records and then the stereo mixes were kind of an afterthought, at least initially, because the mono thing was the important one. That was the one that mattered. Well, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, that's why Phil Spector had that, that button back to mono. Yeah. and Because um, he thought stereo gave the listener too much control over the listening experience. Well, it did. What was interesting as musicians, though, stereo was great for musicians because you could turn off the vocals and just listen to the, the rhythm tracks, or you could turn off the rhythm tracks and just listen to the vocals so you could pick out what was going on. So as a gimmick and as a, uh, uh, a teaching tool, it was actually quite important. But for the overall sound, you want it to just be this sort of onslaught in a, in a single-channel mix. Plus... Uh, to buy a stereo, like recording uh, playback equipment, a right, even a record player that had stereo, had a, it was much more expensive and it had a completely different thing called a stylus, which was a needle, looked like a hypodermic needle. I'm sure you know what it is. Yeah. That would, um, so the stereo was much more complicated. So I, all my early listening and all my friends' early listening was completely mono. What's interesting because the version of persistent percussion that I've been listening to for the past few days is the stereo version, and there's one track where they are, you can tell it's an early stereo thing because the track opens with like fill in the left channel, fill in the right channel, fill in the left channel, fill in the right channel, and then like everything's normal for the rest of the track. But it's it's very much just like how can we use this brand new technology we've got. Well, it was, it was sort of gimmicky when it first came out, and they would do that, you know, and you're not going to hear in a concert hall in those days, uh, 
strictly left, strictly right. It's all going to be kind of mixed together. You may have, you know, depending on what's on your left, you'll hear a little bit more of that. The interesting thing was they got a little, they, sometimes they mix these stereo records from the perspective of the drummer, a right-handed drummer, and sometimes they mixed it uh, <laughs> from the perspective of the audience, which would be right. reversed, depending on your pleasure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, that is like, if you went to a concert and had the experience of it being similar to those early stereo records, it would be terrible. Because if like, you know, if you went to an E Street Band gig and you were over one side of the stage and all you could hear was Steve Van Zandt's guitar and you couldn't hear anything that was going on on the other side of the stage, that would be a terrible way to mix a gig. So it's a kind of an artificial, I mean, like, you know, to what it, to the extent that a lot of studio mixing is artificial, but on... Well, I think it grew out of you have two ears, so why not listen to two discrete signals? And yeah, I guess if you isolate it, but uh, that's not the way people listen to music. It's a total immersion experience. And uh, although when Quad came out, that was interesting. I mean, we're off topic now, but sure. because you do hear, even in mono, you will hear the slapback if you're in a room from the speakers behind you. And uh, and now, of course, you know soundtracks and uh, and movie effects are uh, you know the sky's the limit. But you had to be pretty pretty creative. I mean, and I love talking to people who were in on the beginnings of anything. And I was friendly, very friendly, and worked with quite often uh, Tom Dowd, who was a legendary uh, engineer producer. Really, as an engineer, invented the uh, he and a couple of other guys invented the modern recording sound, and uh, and he loved to talk about it. He was a bass player, which he gave up quickly, and was an electrical engineer when he went to college in the 40s. And uh, uh, he was uh, really one of the masters, created the Atlantic sound, that very lush. There was only three tracks. They started on two tracks. Uh, so you really had to be good with mic placement and everything else. And some of those guys, uh, my first professional recording was with a guy named Frank Laco, who was the number one engineer at Columbia Records on 30th Street. So if you mention Columbia Records 30th Street studio, which was an old church, it's not even there anymore, that was a real, you know, so that's where Sinatra did all his uh, 40s recordings in that building. And I knew that. Frank, also Laco, uh, the engineer, uh, was Tony Bennett's engineer for all the years. He was at, uh, uh, and still is at Columbia, but when Frank Laco was alive. So he did my first real you know released uh rock record wow so you know, the fact that he and he was just assigned to us but i knew who he was from real i always read the credits and in those days it was great to find out everything about that they used they used to put the microphones that they used on the album cover telefunken whatever <laughs> and so you you could really get a picture of what was happening so you were one of those people who would like pour over all the liner notes and then like you'd you know, there'd be a, someone who's like, wait, that person played trumpet on this this rock album, but they also played trumpet on this Sinatra record that I heard two years ago or cross-referencing. Oh, yeah. yeah, the credits, I still do. I still look at credits whenever I can, and I never leave a movie until the end because I want to see I want to see who the best boy was, who the gaffer was, and I, I don't know why exactly. And uh, But y there's so many people that go into the making of a project, and in those days they would put not just the musicians' names, but the engineers and the second engineer, and as I said, the equipment they used, yeah. where it was, what studio it was. 
you know, if you were recording a Capitol Records Studio B, that was a major, a major deal, big deal. Um, actually, my son um, recorded there recently for the new Slipknot album uh, at Capitol Studios, you know, and uh, because he's my son, he grew up also with all these names and who these people were and what studios were great and whether it was radio recorders or Gold Star. And some of those studios are still here. I think Gold Star is it's not the same name, obviously different equipment, but these are legendary citadels of music making. You mentioned your son there, Jay, who's a great drummer in his own right. Is When he was a kid, did you try and pass on the sort of grounding that you had in this history of drummers? Did you play him persistent percussion when he was growing up? Did you kind of like try to you know, pass on, expose him to that sort of knowledge base that you had that's informed so much of your own playing? Well, regarding my son Jay, it was interesting until he was 15 years old. He was passionately involved in being a hockey goalie, ice hockey, and he wanted to be in the NHL. And he could have gone all the way. He was that good. And he always liked to listen to music. And I was pl I was working all the time, so I was gone pretty much until about eight o'clock at night. But most of what my children listened to was classical music through my wife, classical and classic rock and Dylan and all this sort of greats. And because I was in the business, they got to see everything and meet people that they wanted to meet or that I thought it would be in, you know, important later on in life to say they met them or at least that they saw them play. So they had a very well-rounded musical education when jay was 15 he really he wanted to learn how to play an instrument and he taught himself how to play the drums and i had nothing to do with it he took one of my old drum sets and he started banging around and one of the bonding things we did as father and son during that time period was i would take him he'd come into he'd take the bus into new york and i take him to a concert like three times a week of all his favorite bands. And uh, so he got to see everybody. In many cases, he got to meet them and he got to ask the drummers this and that, you know, questions because he was this burgeoning interest in music. And he just started picking up little things here and there and taught himself how to play. And I was at work every day, so I didn't quite know that he was even doing this. And I mean, he, he was saying, yeah, I'm messing around. He's got a guitar. He's messing around on guitar. But he was really spending a lot of time with the drums. And he learned how to play the drums by playing to Metallica and Slipknot and Lamb of God and punk records like the you know Ramones. And he just taught himself how to play the drums. And I come from the generation of parents, and I guess that still prevails, where you know you want to give your kids every lesson they can get, whether it's karate or you know Kumon mathematics, and just a, a lot of uh, we were very involved in their education and. He played, he, I saw him sit in with a band and I said, wow, Jay, you're really good. Maybe you want to take some lessons. He goes, no, nah, dad, I just want to do this for myself. I'm not, I don't want to take lessons. I don't want a teacher. I'm just going to, and he was absolutely right. And he got really good, really fast. But Slipknot was his favorite band. He was nine years old and he knew every song by heart. And he had the kind of musical ability to, um, break down all that drumming and was able to do it, which is pretty impressive because it's not just straight for rock and roll and taught himself. The only thing I told him was you must keep a loose 
uh, touch with the sticks. You don't want to grab your sticks, and you must keep strict time. And that was the only two things I ever told them. And, uh, you know, you might want to limit the headbanging a little bit because when you're 40, that's going to be a problem, But which is exactly what my father told me. And uh, I guess fathers through the ages of all said those things to their children and it turns out that they were all right <laughs> you know you don't even know that when you're 14 though but he used it and 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 really just got so good so quickly that when he was 17 he took my place with the east street band when i was doing the tonight show did you ever i mean i'm assuming largely not because the reason that he would have been sitting in was because you couldn't be there but did you ever see him play in your chair, play a gig with the E Street Band? I did see Jay play with the E Street Band. The way he broke into doing it was, um, Bruce, when we were booked to play the Super Bowl in 2009, uh, we were rehearsing in New York City where I was doing the the TV show. And um, Bruce came in with just a scratch pad list of songs and said, "Give give these to Jay. We had already decided, you know, that that he could do it as a drummer, not just because he was my son. He actually could do it. And Bruce had seen him sit in with a band, uh, a band later later that Jay joined uh, against me, which happened to be Bruce's son's favorite band. And Jay happened to be there that night and played, but he had a long beard, and and Bruce didn't at first rec- he didn't recognize him when he was playing the drums. <laughs> he went back to the dressing room and said, "Jay, was that you and the drums?" Wow, you played the hell out of the drums. He was only 16, and he remembered that. And so when we figured out we had the scheduling conflict, uh, Jay learned all these songs and had his own method of doing it. Uh, I think he was 17 years old, plus he was going to school, and got straight A's in school and learned that book, which was an incredible uh, accomplishment for anybody, even you know a professional. And he wasn't a professional at that point. Although he was approached it as a professional, but he's had this unca- uh, you know the uncanny ability to be able to hear a song and play it, and well, ear training. Uh, they talk legends about Buddy Rich being who couldn't read music, who would sit down and listen to another drummer, usually a guy named Stanley Kay or whoever was around, play a chart, and he'd get up and he'd play it perfectly the first time, having listened to it once. Jay's got a little bit of that where he he just hears this stuff maybe in a matrix, uh, I think the way he approaches it. But um, the only thing I ever said was don't hold the sticks tightly because you'll hurt your hands and keep strict tempo. And both of those things he's done. It's got beautiful, beautiful technique. And it's challenging music. Yeah. What's the, I mean, I guess I'm asking this about him, but then there's also a broader thing about this. Like your parts have been played by a lot of other drummers. Like, which is uh, not a, it's not a completely unique thing, but it's a it's a different thing that a lot of even like really successful drummers don't often see other people play interpretations of what they've created. Like you must have seen like a thousand you like you've walked into a bar somewhere and the band's playing Glory Days or something. <laughs> yeah. So you've just you've seen your parts that you created through the years reinterpreted by other drummers a lot, and I'm just wondering what that is like. Well, it's always fun, and I'm I'm a big as big a fan of Bruce's music as anybody. I just happen to be the guy in the drum seat playing the drums, and uh, uh, you know, you always think you can do better, and a record is the best you can do at that moment, you know. 
and that's why I say we have all grown as musicians, particularly in making records. But uh, I I love it. You know, I once went. I once happened. A guy came up to me and said, uh, "I'm you." I said, "What do you mean? I'm you're me." As was that I was at one of my gigs uh, in California, actually in Poway, down south here from Los Angeles, and he said, "Well, I'm in a Springsteen tribute band, and I'm you. I play you." <laughs> and uh, and he, you know, they dressed up like us and they you know they did the whole nine yards and it was uh i i think it's great because i learned by imitating i learned basically i took drum lessons but you know i was there in my the attic with my drums playing this cheap little record player as loud as i could to beetle records and, and stones records it was hard to do because it would no i didn't even have headphones i mean i'm just playing to this little speaker yeah and imagining i'm charlie watts or imagining i'm ringo Starr, or you know one of 50 drummers that that i admired because of the records you know mike hug in in manford man and uh, you know so i i appreciate it and it's interesting to hear what people also hear because i know the the actual thing i played on the record yeah. and then the way they're hearing it may be a little bit different do you find sometimes people are either like there'll be a little, there'll be something small in there that people just blow past because they don't, they think they know the song and they've just like, actually, no, there's a little drag on the snare and that bit that they're not playing or someone's inserted something that you aren't actually playing but it's implied by something you're playing and it's like this, you know, Chinese yeah. whispers version of your part. Yeah, that happens. And that, that happens when I play in the jukebox, for example, and I'll play a song, a Beatles song. And, and I really know the Beatle music, but there's always something I'm finding that I didn't do or that he did or that he didn't do. Jumpin' Jack Flash is a song we get asked to play a lot because it's all audience requests. And drummers in bands who play that song think there's a, a lot of drum fills. There isn't one drum fill in that. It's strictly beat through the whole song. And... If you listen to the beauty of Charlie Watts' playing on that, it's just this tough, driving, you know, bass drum, hi-hat, snare drum beat. I don't even think there's any cymbals. Drummers always put fills in and, yeah. you know, so it's sort of, uh, uh, I like to play as close as I can to the original. And when I'm playing the Bruce music, um, I, I'd say I play about 95% of what I played on the record because I always, particularly when I was a little younger, because I, I assume that there might be somebody out there like me who wants to hear what was on the record. And so I try to play it as close as possible. Uh, I once had the opportunity to play with The Who, all three of The Who. And we played Pinball Wizard. And that's one of my favorite drum parts, Keith Moon. And I couldn't wait to get to that part between the uh, first chorus and the next first, second verse where there's this little fill that I remember listening to as a kid and tr then analyzing, well, how did he do that? And there's a little thing where, you know, and... I can remember back, I can visualize myself sitting down, listening to that. What are those drums he's playing? How does he choreograph that move without messing up? Yeah. And so when I played it with The Who, I couldn't wait to get to that spot to do that. 
He's such an interesting drummer because he played like a piano player almost and a lot of what he played makes absolutely no intuitive sense whatsoever. But prob- I guess did was natural for him. But I, when you're approaching it as like that's something that's set, you do have to kind of work out like how am I going to actually make this thing make sense to play it properly? Well, Keith Moon was a lead, lead instrument in The Who. And by virtue of being the lead instrument... Everything else was a bit subservient to what he was doing because he was an unschooled, technically unschooled drummer, but he really had big ears and he was a big fan of music. Incredible recording drummer and, you know, his feel was just, and his, his execution was astounding for someone who'd never really sort of studied drums, just was a natural. He was a real natural, but he played so spontaneously and of course, if you listen to the early records, he got more and more spontaneous as he got older. But he could also, those those are very composed drum parts on the Who records, even if they happen spontaneously. He he knew where he was going. I, I don't really, I'm not familiar with their recording process, but you can really pick apart his drumming as composed and not just, he's just playing whatever he wants in the moment beautiful drum parts i mean just uh, one of the most unique drummers in history uh, more like elvin jones than he was uh, anybody else you know uh, mitch mitchell too from Jimi hendrix was you know these guys love jazz uh, i don't think keith did mitch mitchell did and he was there was a drummer named phil seaman in england um, in the uh, 50s who was the main jazz drummer and all the drummers wanted to be like him from uh, particularly in the London area. Ginger Baker was his probably his biggest acolyte. He didn't have a lot of healthy habits, but uh, he was a legendary drummer, very much in the same vein as a guy named Davey Tuff, uh, who was Charlie Watts' favorite drummer. Dave Tuff played with Woody Herman's original big band, and he wasn't real schooled, but I've heard drummers of his era say that nobody's drums sounded more beautiful than Dave Tuff. And he died very young and his recorded legacy isn't as large as some people's, but you know, you get me on a tangent talking about these drummers and, uh, 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 but you, you know, I'm someone who has appreciated what went on before and when before the before where it all came from, you know, some of these drummers who were completely unknown, who were just, unbelievable drummers who just never had that right break or the the right song to play on, you know, but you'll catch them on an odd track here and there. Well, one thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up, um, before I knew which album you were going to talk about for this, I um, messaged my friend Jimmy Vivino. Yeah. And I asked him, like, you guys have known each other a long time. What do you think Max is going to pick? And he said, well, I might be completely off base because Max has got such an incredibly deep range of listening, but he thought it was going to be Meet the Beatles. Well, of course, Meet the Beatles. And Jimmy Vivino would know because without Jimmy Vivino... um the entire Max Weinberg 7 
and our TV experience wouldn't have happened the way it did. He was a key. He was my musical partner, uh, without a doubt, uh, the most trained musician I've ever uh, worked with. Uh, inspirational because we both got off on the little things uh, that we saw in records and his knowledge of, for example, Broadway music was as large as mine. and Just an all-around, big-eared, talented guy who didn't particularly want to do the things that I wanted to do on TV and I didn't know how to do the things he knew how to do. So yes, Meet the Beatles was an extraordinarily important album for me and my generation. But I had a bit of an interesting experience with my exposure to the Beatles. I had a friend in seventh grade who went to England. Her whole family went to England with her father for a business trip during Thanksgiving. That's the week of Thanksgiving, uh, 1963. And they left for England on November 21st, which was a Thursday, 1963. The next day, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated. They were in England, and she spent Thanksgiving in England. She came back from England with the album with the Beatles, which was all the craze over there. We didn't know anything about the Beatles. Certainly, if you were you know, 12 years old, you didn't know anything about the Beatles at that point. This was just about the end of November 1963. So she had this album with the Beatles which was the English version of what became Meet the Beatles. And it had two extra songs on it. And it was mono. They were huge in Europe and, and England at that point, mostly northern, northwestern Europe. So I heard the Beatles, and to me it sounded like a very energetic Everly Brothers record, who were really big at the time, and they were on TV a lot. I'd been playing drums at that point for about five years, and actually working as a drummer and playing what was being played, whatever needed to be played, whether it was a cha-cha or a merengue or a Latin beat. And I was working. I was out playing as a little young kid drummer. Uh, it was something Jimmy and I have in common. Jimmy and his two brothers were uh, an act when they were you know, young teenagers. Uh, they're quite a bit younger than I am, but what really turned it for me was I listened to that with the Beatles, and then my friend down the street got the single of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And... You know, a single in those days was, I think, 69 cents. I didn't have 69 cents to spend on records. So I used to go over to his house and listen to I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was not on with the Beatles. And so by the time they came on the Ed Sullivan show, I was just frantic with anticipation of this thing. As it turned out, so many of my you know, contemporaries age-wise were too, you know. You know, I knew for about... It must have been about two months. I knew who, you know, there was this ad, the Beatles are coming, the Beatles are coming. I knew who the Beatles were. And I heard that record. And so I was, but there was a famous film clip of them uh, on the Jack Parr show, which was the Tonight Show in December. Well, I didn't see that. It was on at 11.30 at night, live. I didn't see that. Uh, but, you know, from the moment they went out and played All My Lovin' on the Ed Sullivan show, this was really different. Because I saw Elvis on the Milton Berle show six months before uh, Ed Sullivan. I was a fan of DJ Fontana right from the first. That's what made me want to start playing the drums seriously. And my parents encouraged me to play the drums. So the impact of the Beatles, with the Beatles, meet the Beatles, just everything after that was, 
was English invasion music. They call it the English invasion. And what people don't realize is the Dave Clark Five for about a year was as big as the Beatles. I mean, they were competitive. Not really, but they were competitive, much like the big bands were 20 years before that, where they would have these cutting contests. And uh, there's a wonderful book coming out, really the definitive biography of Buddy Rich. And it very much details the competition between the big bands. And it wasn't just musical, it was economic. If uh, the Casaloma band beat you uh, out of uh, a contest, they were more likely to get the job than you were. Or, you know, people up in Harlem talk about the incredible cutting contests between Chick Webb's orchestra and the Count Basie orchestra. And uh, uh, nothing so spectacular to me as sitting in Buddy Rich's dressing room listening to him talk about Chick Webb, who was his favorite drummer, or listening to him describe the sound of Billy Gladstone, who was the New York Philharmonic's principal snare drummer, the sound of his role, and two big, big influences on Buddy Rich. So I've always been fascinated by that, and when you're fascinated by the era, that leads you into really digging deep into the music and what they were doing. And when I put the TV band together, uh, handpicked, and Jimmy was the first, Jimmy Vivino, because uh, I knew him as a talented, obviously a talented guitar player, singer. His arrangement skills are unbelievable, and his ability to write charts. I knew what the job entailed. I knew that I wasn't prepared to do that because I'm pretty much an unschooled, I mean, I took drum lessons, and I can, I can read Jimmy's charts. I can read them like nothing because you know i've read thousands of jimmy vivino's hand handwritten charts which i still have for that tv show and what my concept was uh, i was good at the business and and uh, uh and the organization which when you're working for at the time general electric uh, there's a lot of that organization in business um i wanted to go back to the age where there were 15 we economically we couldn't have 15 people or 16 people like Doc Severinsen. And the, I, the Max Weinberg 15 doesn't sound as cool anyway, so. No, you know, first, even before we went on the air, every day they had, a, we did 10 test shows and they had a different name for the band, the Max Weinberg Experience, the Max Weinberg 4 plus 3. <laughs> and then somebody came up with the idea of the Max Weinberg Septet. And my wife said, that sounds too sort of society, jazzy, you know, how about seven? Seven's always one of these, and there were seven guys. It was sort of, a mystical number it's it's in every culture the number, Lucky seven. number seven yeah and it was like yeah that's a little bit like the dave clark five so max weinberg seven that worked and it was fun i mean it was it, jimmy and i you know writing these uh where he would you know sit down i said well it should go like this and then he'd write it out I mean, he writes a nine page chart like you would write a letter and very 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 impressive and i wanted everything charted and i wanted everything uh, in a lot of different styles and that was some of the most fun I've ever had as a as a mu musician band leader was just the two of us in a little studio hammering out the, like they did in the 40s and the 50s two guys hammering out music you know uh, bringing their individual talents and abilities to the task and then the band of course were phenomenal musicians and we grew together and I used it as a workshop because I just you know, I had these six great musicians to play with for, you know, two hours of rehearsal if I wanted, and I didn't have to pay them. So I could play whatever I wanted to. It was great. <laughs> well, that might be a nice note to wrap things up on. Max, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you today. My pleasure to be with you too. 
Well, that's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. My Favourite Album is a production of House Red Media. It's edited by Ellie Willoughby and produced by Georgia Mooney and myself, Jeremy Dillon.